This sermon is brought to you by Buford Road Baptist Church. The speaker today is Pastor Tony Cahoot. And uh, if you have your Bibles, turn them with me to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. And uh, while you're turning, I want to say that in addition to looking at a lot of scriptures this morning, the message today is very deep. And usually... I do not try to preach at that deep level because when I leave church and when I go hear preachers preach, I want them to preach to me, not over my head. And I know that you probably feel the same way. However, this is a sermon this morning that there is no simple way to preach it. And uh, it's a message that I have never preached before in my life, so I'm not very familiar with standing in the pulpit today speaking on this subject. It's the first time I've ever done it. Now, in uh, different periods of my ministry, I have mentioned things that I'm going to mention today, but this is the first time that I've ever put this message together in its context. And I will tell you again that it is a deep sermon, and it's filled with many scriptures. And because I don't preach it often and have never preached this message, I can only assume that it would probably take me three or four more times in the Prophecy Sermon series to preach this particular message for you to grasp all of its marvelous truths. And I understand that. But I encourage you to get what you can. But keep it in mind today that this, this is an unusual message. And this morning I'm speaking on the rebuilding and the occupation of the third temple. Now that subject title in itself seems complicated. The rebuilding and the occupation of the third temple. But if you can hold that thought in your mind and pay close attention, again, when we turn to the scriptures, they will be so many and so fast. I don't want to uh, lose your thought in what we're saying. So follow carefully with the sermon today. I want you to notice with me carefully now in Revelation chapter 11, beginning in verse number 1. Revelation 11, verse 1. And there was given me a reed like unto a rod. And the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court, which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not. For it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. Listen very carefully. I'm going to give you some very simple things that we have talked about before we launch into the deep. At any moment, the trumpet of God could sound. We believe in the imminent return of Christ, which that means that he indeed could come at any moment. When the trumpet sounds, and I have taught you so well, and I hope and pray that you are well rehearsed in this, when the trumpet sounds, according to the scriptures in which we have read in the last couple of Sundays, the dead in Christ will rise first. 
Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. Somebody asked me, well, why do the dead get to rise first? Well, they got six foot further to go than we do. So God's trying to keep it on an even plane here. You know, they'll rise first, we'll catch them. And then the Bible says that we will meet the Lord in the air. Now listen to this. At this particular time, the Lord Jesus does not come back to the earth. We meet him in the air. Now you have to also remember this, that when that meeting in the air takes place, the world will be launched, propelled into a seven-year tribulation period. What will we be doing for those seven years of tribulation? The first three and a half years in the air, the Lord Jesus will be conducting the judgment seat of Christ for all of the believers. Then at the end of the first three and a half years, the world down here enters into a period of time called the Great Tribulation. After the first three and a half years for us, when the judgment seat of Christ is over, we move into the second three and a half years, which we will all be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So we go from the judgment seat of Christ for three and a half years to the next three and a half years of the marriage supper of the Lamb. At the end of the seven years, the Lord Jesus Christ then returns to the earth. According to the word of God, he will lead the armies of heaven riding a white stallion. You and I are making up these armies of heaven. We are with him. And we come with him. We are all riding white stallions. Somebody says, I don't do horses. Hey, you need to get some lessons. <laughs> or just forget about the lessons. I'm telling you right now, everybody's going to do the horse thing. <laughs> We're going to be following him. The word of God teaches us this in Revelation chapter 19. And we will follow him down. I want you to know that the Lord, the Bible says this in Zechariah chapter 14, verse number four. And in that day, his feet shall stand upon the Mount of Olives. When he returns in the Revelation, he will stand upon the Mount of Olives. And according to the word of God, the mountain will cleave in two. Then, according to the scriptures, we will follow Jesus as he majestically makes his way down the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. According to the word of God, we will cross the Kidron Valley, which is right underneath the Mount of Olives. We will cross the Kidron Valley. We will follow Jesus as he majestically leads us through the eastern gate. And then he will take his seat upon the throne of David in the third temple where he will rule and reign for a thousand years. Now we get into the deep part of the message today. Pastor, how does the third temple come about? How does that happen? Well, I want you to pay very close attention because we're going to get into some deep, complex study this morning. And I hope that you will grasp all that you can. Listen carefully. I'm going to explain this whole process to you the best that I possibly can today. During the ministry of Moses... God had summonsed him to the top of several mountains to meet with him. We know that God first summoned Moses to the top of Mount Horeb. 
Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro on the backside of the desert. And he happened to be captivated by the most unusual thing that he had ever seen. And that was a bush burning, yet it was not being consumed. And through that burning bush, God compelled Moses to come to the top of Mount Horeb. And you know the story. There God spoke to Moses and said, I have chosen you to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. I don't have time this morning to go through all of the details of conversation between God and Moses on the top of Mount Horeb. You know the story. Finally, Moses went. Later on, God summoned Moses to the top of Mount Sinai. I want you to think about that. We all know about that basically. But there is something about that rendezvous with God on the top of Mount Sinai that is not often thought about. You're very familiar with the fact that while Moses was there on the Sinai, God gave him the Ten Commandments. Most everybody in here knows that. But I will tell you there's another element of that conversation that we don't talk about a whole lot. And maybe some of you this morning are not very familiar with it. God not only gave Moses the Ten Commandments, but he also gave him instructions to build a tabernacle And he gave him instructions on how to build the vessels that would facilitate the tabernacle. I want you to look at the scripture in Exodus chapter 25. Exodus chapter 25. And look with me, if you will, beginning in verse number 8. God told Moses with the Ten Commandments in his hand. He said, I also want you to build a tabernacle. I'm going to tell you how to build it. And I'm going to tell you what to put in it. In Exodus 25, in verse number 8, the word says this, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Verse 9, According to all that I show thee after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall you make it. Verse 40, And look that thou make them after their pattern which was showed thee in the mount. Now let me say this, God's purpose for the tabernacle was that God wanted to show his presence on the earth among his people. That was the whole purpose. And so listen very carefully. From Moses to Solomon, don't forget this, the people of God worshipped in what was called a tabernacle. From Moses to To Solomon, in the tabernacle, the priests would offer sacrifices and make prayers of intercessions for the sins of the people. They went. This went on for many, many years. And then at some point in King David's reign, he had a compulsive desire to build a permanent house of God, which he would call the temple. So you have to understand, from Moses to Solomon, there was a tabernacle. David said, I want to build a permanent house of God. I want you to see this in 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you can turn there, and I'm going to read for you verses 1 through 5. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. The Bible says, And it came to pass when the king sat in his house, and the Lord had given him rest round about from all of his enemies, 
that the king said unto Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in thy heart, for the Lord is with thee. And it came to pass that night that the word of the Lord came unto Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus saith the Lord, Shall thou build me a house for me to dwell in? Now let me explain something very important to you. The difference between the tabernacle and the temple was this. The tabernacle was a portable house of God that continually relocated upon God's instructions. God would lead his people to a certain destination and he would say, now set up the tabernacle. And then after God was finished with this particular area, he would lead his children to another destination and he would say, pick up the stakes, take the tabernacle with you. And so wherever God moved the people and where he told them to stop, it was there that they erected the tabernacle. So keep in mind, the tabernacle was constantly moving. Now, the temple was designed to be a permanent house of God. Keep that in mind. As David wanted so desperately to build the temple, God said, David, I will allow you to be the architect. I will allow you to be the designer. But you will not build it because you are a man of war. Everywhere you turn, there is a war here and a war there. And God said, I will not permit you to build it. And I want you to see this in First Chronicles. In First Chronicles chapter 28 and verse number 3. I want you to look at this. David desperately wanted to build the temple. But God said no. In First Chronicles chapter 28 and verse number 3. But God said unto me, Thou shalt not build a house for my name, because thou hast been a man of war and hast shed blood. Now, as David submitted to the fact that God would not allow him to build the temple, David began to make preparations for it and gave the charge to Solomon, his son, to build the temple. I want you to see this. You're in 1 Chronicles. I want you to look at chapter 22. 1 Chronicles chapter 22 and verse number 5 and 6. Notice with me. And David said, Solomon, my son, is young and tender. And the house that is to be builded for the Lord must be exceeding magnifold and fame and of glory. Throughout all countries, I will therefore now make preparation for it. So David prepared abundantly before his death. In verse 6, then he called for Solomon his son and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. And so Solomon did that. Turn quickly. 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse number 1. 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse number 1. I mentioned earlier that we would be looking at a lot of scriptures today, but I'm giving you every piece of the puzzle that you need. And if you're writing, take good notes. You might want to go back and reread it again. But in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, look at the scripture. And it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel were come out of the land of Egypt. In the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month Ziph, which is the second month. 
that he began to build the house of the Lord. So I want you to understand, now keep in mind, from Moses to Solomon, they had been worshiping in portable tabernacles. Now David said to his son, Solomon, God wants you to build the, te the temple. Here's how you do it. And so according to the word of God, Solomon did. Now here's the interesting thing that I want you to remember. It took Solomon seven and a half years to build the temple. It was a magnificent structure. And I did some research on this. In 1925, the Illinois Society of Architects estimated in 1925 the cost of Solomon's temple. And at that particular point, it was $89 billion in 1925. But if Solomon's temple were to be built today in all of its glory that it was built in in his day, it is estimated that today it would cost over $500 billion to build Solomon's temple. Now here is where you have to really pay attention. That temple that Solomon built, the first temple, remained intact until 586 B.C. until the Babylonians came in and besieged the city of Jerusalem and took the children of Israel in captivity. And then in 515 B.C., the beginning of the rebuilding of the second temple took place under the authorship of Zerubbabel. Now listen carefully. When Zerubbabel tried to rebuild the temple, you have to remember the first one was completely destroyed. And so later on in 515 BC, Zerubbabel, he made an attempt to try to rebuild it, rebuilding the second temple. He got a little bit far with it, but he did not complete it. And the second temple did not have the beauty that the first temple had. In fact, the prophet Haggai had something to say about that. If you can find that book of the Bible quickly, and it's an easy place to do, if you go to the last book of the Bible, Malachi, back up three slots, Malachi, Zechariah, and Haggai. That's out of order, but if you can do it that way, find the last book of the Bible and then go back to the left, you will find the book of Haggai. The prophet Haggai had something to say about how the fact that the second temple did not compare to the first one. Look at this, if you will. Haggai chapter 2 and verse number 3. Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? He's talking about the first temple. How do ye see it now? The prophet says, how do you compare the first temple to this second temple that is in progress? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? The prophet is saying, this is nothing compared to the beauty and the glory and the splendor of the first temple. And in the middle of rebuilding the second temple, again, more conquerors came in and the temple project was abandoned. Then listen carefully. A half a millennia later, King Herod, comes into the picture, and he begins picking up 
in the middle of the project rebuilding the second temple. And he did that for the pleasure, strictly for the pleasure of the Jews. And it took King Herod 46 years to finish building the second temple. I want you to understand that. In fact, John chapter 2 verse 20 helps us to see this. In John chapter 2 and verse number 20. The Bible says, Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? Obviously, this conversation is directed to Jesus, and I'll give you more scripture in a moment. You can turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. But in this temple... The second temple is where the Lord Jesus would stand and he would teach and he would preach. And one of the times that Jesus was preaching in the second temple, he prophesied that the temple would be destroyed. Matthew 24, verse number 1. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not at all these things? Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Jesus was prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem once again. He was prophesying the destruction of the second temple. And the second temple indeed was destroyed in 70 AD when Titus the Roman came through and leveled it completely. During that particular besiegement and destruction of Jerusalem, over one million Jews were killed. And Romans in their brutality, they crucified Jews along the streets of Jerusalem. You could see it for miles. When the second temple was destroyed, the only thing that remained standing was what is called today the Western Wall. Many people know it as the Wailing Wall. I, I have taken many of you to, to the Holy Land with me, and we have gone to the Wailing Wall many times. And uh, when you stop and think about that, today millions of tourists and Orthodox Jews, they go there to pray continually, every day, all throughout the year. And uh, these particular Jews, these Orthodox Jews, they believe that all the prayers that actually get to heaven have to get to heaven from Jerusalem. And so what they do is they write their prayers on these little pieces of paper and they go to the Wailing Wall and they stick these prayers in the crevices of the rocks because they believe that that is the only vehicle, the only place that prayer can be offered. And so they, they really believe that. So today, here's what I want you to understand. There is no temple. Now, I've just given you the history of the first temple and the second temple. But in our main text this morning of Scripture, John the Revelator mentions a temple. And that Scripture that we have read in the introduction of the message today is a prophetic declaration that the third temple indeed one day will be built. And I will tell you this, that the reason why that the third temple has not been rebuilt as of right now is because today the mosque of Omar or the Dome of the Rock sits upon where the temple needs to be built. And I will tell you this, according to the Muslims, Mount Moriah is the most holy site to all Muslims all over the world. 
Muslims believe that Muhammad, the prophet, ascended to heaven on a white-winged horse. But you and I as born-again believers understand the scriptures to say that on Mount Moriah, it was there that God told Abraham to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. The idea of the Jews going under construction on the Temple Mount would be catastrophic. In fact, if you remember, in 1967, when the Israelis went through what was called the Six-Day War, and the Assyrians were defeated, and you think about this, they won the war in six days. When they won the war and recaptured all of their territory, they immediately handed over back to the Muslims the Temple Mount. Because they knew that if they didn't, it would unite all radical Islam all over the world. And it would be catastrophic for Israel. They knew that. So as they had taken back all of the territories and won the 67 war in six days, they willfully gave the Temple Mount back to the Muslims. But I want you to understand something. There is already in the works today at the Temple Institute a preparation to resurrect the third temple. In fact, they are already in the progress of making the vessels to go in it. I have seen it with my own eyes. I have seen the laver, the candlesticks, the trumpets. I've seen them. The vessels that will be used in the third temple. I have seen the priestly garments that will be worn. The only thing that the Jews need now to begin the construction of the third temple is the ashes of the red heifer. And they need that to consecrate the priest. And they are doing everything they possibly can now to breed one. But I will tell you this. In 1952, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in a little place called Qumran, archaeologists and historians and uh, theologians in Israel, Orthodox theologians, believe that somehow the old remaining ashes of the red heifer are somewhere in Qumran. I don't know, but that's what they believe. Not only are they frantically trying to find the ashes of the red heifer, but they're also trying to find the Ark of the Covenant. The great prophetic message about rebuilding the third temple resounds the fact that God indeed is not finished with the Jewish people. They are still his chosen one and he still has a purpose for them. On May the 14th, 1948, a nation that had been virtually extinct for over 1900 years was raised and resurrected out of the ashes of time. In that year, Israel became a nation and was restored to her former homeland. Now listen to this. Since then, we have seen God's hand of protection upon them. When you have a little country surrounded about all of these hostile people that so desperately want their demise, isn't it amazing that the Jewish people still remain in the land? I ask you this question today just for a moment. Tell me, pray tell me this. Where are the Philistines today? I ask you a question, where are the Hittites today? Where are the Amorites? Where are the Perizzites? All of these enemies that had come against the children of Israel, where are they? 
They don't exist. God has taken his people and has resurrected them out of the ashes of time because God's people are here to stay. And I firmly believe this. It doesn't matter what North Korea wants. doesn't matter what Iraq wants. doesn't matter what Iran wants. And it doesn't matter what these barbaric hoodlums, the terror of ISIS want. I'm telling you, God's people are in the land to stay. Amen. Somebody say amen. amen. Glory to God. No matter how dark and dim it seems in the Holy Land right now, God is not through with his people. I want you to look more carefully at Revelation chapter 11 and verse number 1 and 2. Revelation chapter 11. John here is describing the third temple. I've given you an understanding of the first. I've given you the understanding of the second. And maybe there are some people in here today did not know that there were one and two or even the second one. But in Revelation chapter 11 verse 1, the Bible says, And there was given me a reed. Like unto a rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. Verse 2. But the court which is without the temple, leave out, measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles. And the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. John, the revelator, is told to take a reed and measure the temple and the altar and the worshipers. And the reed here, let me say this for a moment. The reed here is a reference to a plant that grows in the beautiful Jordan Valley. The reed itself is approximately 15 to 20 feet long. And it is hollow and lightweight, but at the same time, it's extremely durable. Most of the times, they use the reed as walking sticks or canes as we know them. If you would reference Ezekiel 29, we're going to come right back to it, but I want you to see another passage of the Scripture where this reed is made in reference of the Scripture. In Ezekiel chapter 29 and verse number 6, the Bible says, All the inhabitants and all the inhabitants of Egypt shall know that I am the Lord because they have been a staff, notice this, or reed to the house of Israel. Now, when John was told to measure the measuring implies two things. One, it's a symbol of full preservation. God intends to preserve his people. He's claiming the temple. And number two, it speaks of faithful possession. God intends on keeping every single promise that he's ever made the Jews, every single promise that he's ever made me. God intends on keeping that. But he has set them aside for a season. However, I want you to know that it is God's desire that a remnant will be preserved. A remnant will be saved. Zechariah chapter 13, verse number 8 and 9. They can probably get it on the screen before you can find it. In Zechariah chapter 13, verse 8 and 9. And it shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein. And I will bring the third part through the fire and will refine them as silver is refined and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name and I will hear them. I will say, it is my people and they shall say, this is my God. Now, another interesting observation here in Revelation chapter 11, verse two is this. 
John is told to measure the inner court, but not the outer court. Revelation 11.2, But the court which is without the temple leave out and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. Now here's the thing. Listen carefully. The outer court is given to the Gentiles who are going to occupy the city for three and a half years. That's talking about the last half of the tribulation period. So, this indeed confirms the fact that there is going to be a third temple built right after the rapture, I believe. Either right before or right after the rapture. Now, here's the thing. The Antichrist, as you know, he is going to come into the beginning of the tribulation as a political leader. As soon as the trump of God sounds and the rapture takes place, the Antichrist immediately comes in on the scene as a peacemaker. And he is going to bring all the nations of the world together under a false peace treaty and even will allow the Jews to worship in this third temple and offer sacrifices just like they did in the days of old. But soon the peace treaty will go well and then it will go south. Daniel chapter 9 verse 25 talks about this. Listen carefully. If they get it on the screen, you read it. If not, pay attention. Daniel 9, verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood. And unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate even until the consummation. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Now here's what you have to remember. When the Antichrist comes in on the scene at the first three and a half years of the tribulation, he's coming in as a peacemaker. He is going to allow the Jews to enter into this third temple that they have just built. He is going to allow them to offer the sacrifices. But when the second three and a half years begin, he is going to say, no, you're not going to be offering sacrifices to anybody but me. I am God. He is going to set an image in the temple. He is going to set himself up as God. And so as he has allowed these Jewish people for three and a half years to offer sacrifices, he is going to say no more. He is going to make them leave the temple, set himself up as God, and then he is going to be demanding people to worship him. That's called the abomination of desolation. And that's when many of the Jews, according to the scripture, will flee into the mountains of Petra. It will be an unbelievable, unprecedented time of persecution for the Jewish people. Now, in the middle of the tribulation, here's the thing to understand. As the Antichrist enters the temple, he will enter into the Holy of Holies and set himself up as God. Look at this passage quickly in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. This passage gives you exactly what I've just explained to you. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3 and 4, the Bible says this. Let no man deceive you by any means, 
For that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And when he does that, it is going to initiate the worst persecution of the Jewish people in all of human history. Can you find Matthew 24 real fast? Let me give you this passage of Scripture, Matthew chapter 24. When that happens, when the Antichrist drives the Jews out of Jerusalem, out of the temple, severe persecution will take place. Matthew 24, beginning in verse 16 through 22, gives you the idea of what's going to happen. The Bible says in verse 16, Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. They are fleeing because of the Antichrist. He set the image up in the temple. He is now declaring himself to be God. And the Jewish people realize that they have been terribly deceived, that this could not possibly be Jehovah. Verse 17, let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field run back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time. No, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. So once again, the Jews will lose their temple. Have you got the picture so far? They lost the first temple because it was destroyed. They lost the second temple because it was destroyed. And now they're losing the third temple because the Antichrist has set himself up as God and established an image for people to worship. And so once again, the Jews will be driven from their temple and from their land. Now there's a strong divine reason why God's allowing all of this to happen. Why, why would God do it? After so much time and bringing now the third temple into view, there's a divine reason for it. And you have to remember this, that God is continually, he's intently working with the Jewish people. It's his divine will that all be saved is what the word says. And God is going to show his people in the most vivid way. Here's the point. That animal sacrifice cannot take away their sin. He is going to show them that animal sacrifice cannot bring them peace and forgiveness. Now it's true that God is going to allow them to rebuild the third temple. It's true that God will allow them to offer their sacrifices in it once again. But this is a process how God is going to show them that because of their continual rejection of Jesus Christ as their Messiah, he is going to show them how their sacrifices continually repudiate the gospel and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to show them that because they have rejected the gospel from the preaching of the two witnesses and the preaching of the 144,000, that they are now going to pay a severe price for it. God is going to use this awful experience to purify his people. We don't have time, and I'm not going to turn to it, and I'm not going to ask you to turn, but you might want to, if you're taking notes, to write down Zechariah chapter 10 through chapter 13. And you can go back and read that, and it will give you the story. 
Here's what I want you to know, that many of God's people are going to be saved in this unprecedented time of horror. At the end of this tribulation, at the end of the seven years, at the end of the horror, Jesus Christ will descend from heaven. We will follow him down to the Mount of Olives. As I said in the beginning, the mountain will cleave in two. We will follow the Lord down the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. We will cross the Kidron Valley, go through the eastern gate, and Jesus will take his seat majestically upon the throne of David. Revelation 20 talks about this. Look at it very carefully. Revelation chapter 20 and verse number 1. I close with this. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the keys of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. And I saw thrones and they that sat upon them and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witnesses of Jesus and for the word of God and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Now here's what's going to happen. As Jesus returns to the earth, with his spoken word, he is going to defeat the Antichrist. He is going to defeat Satan. He is going to take Satan and is going to put him in chains and is going to put him in this pit, in the abyss, and he's going to seal it up for a thousand years. That's called the millennium. Jesus then goes and takes his seat on the throne of David. And we will have 1,000 years of peace. 1,000 years free from the devil's temptations. Next Sunday, I'm going to be preaching this message when God puts Satan in chains. You need to understand what's going to happen in that process. What will it be like in the millennium? Let me say this. When Jesus takes his rightful place on the throne of David, when the saints go marching in. My question is, will you be there? You see, heaven is a prepared place for prepared people. And if you want to hook up with Jesus for eternity, you have to know him and the power of his resurrection. Have you ever given your heart to Christ? Oh, friend, listen, what's going on? in the Middle East and all over the world today, I'm telling you, I don't know that I have the adjectives to properly explain to you how close we are to the trumpet sounding. When the Lord returns with the trumpet, where will you be? Because every one of us will be somewhere forever. Will you be caught up? Will you be in that meeting in the air? Will you be left behind to go through the seven years of horrible, horrible tribulation? Where will you be in your Christian faith? Where will you be in your walk?
Will you be in church serving the Lord happy? Will you be out discontent, disgruntled? Will you be serving him or serving man? What will you be doing when the trumpet sounds? It could happen like this. I beg you in Jesus' name, if you don't know him as your Savior, trust him today. You listen to Pastor Tony Cahoot. For more information, visit our website at BufordRoadBaptistChurch.com.